Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, continuing on from last month's episode on The Fellowship of the Ring. In Middle-earth, the war against Sauron is now in full swing. Frodo and Sam are making their way through Mordor with Gollum, while Gimli, Legolas and Aragorn encounter the Kingdom of Rohan and Merry and Pippin are captured by orcs. Just in case you need a recap of what happens in the second Lord of the Rings book slash movie. Yeah, we also recorded an audio commentary track for this film and obviously the previous movie, which are both available on Patreon. And thank you so much to our episode sponsor, Lucy, who paid for us to do this whole uh, Lord of the Rings experience. So we're looking forward to talking about this movie. You should check out our Fellowship of the Ring podcast if you didn't listen to it last month. We are very serious Lord of the Rings fans. We had a lot to say about kind of Tolkien's literary influences and that sort of thing, and also our childhood love of the franchise. But before we get into that, I just want to uh, announce a really cool new project, which I launched uh, last week. It is a YouTube channel called Behind the Scenes, which is all about costume design on film. Kind of before I was a film critic, I was a fashion and costume design blogger. And if you've listened to a bunch of the podcast, you'll know that I often have quite strong feelings on costumes. I like to think that I am really legitimately an expert. (laughs) And um, this YouTube channel is great. I'm so proud of it. Um, Each episode is kind of where there's going to be some which focus on particular movies and sort of analyze all the costumes in that film. There's others that are kind of going into... Uh, tropes and subgenres and kind of ways that Hollywood uses costume to reinforce gender roles and that sort of thing. The first two episodes are up. One of them is a deep dive into Mad Max Fury Road, which is an amazing movie from a costume design perspective. It's got this kind of deep history with the Mad Max franchise kind of shaping that image of uh, like leather clad sort of punk post-apocalyptic styles. But it also kind of weaves in Lots of the political world building in the film is visible in the costumes in way that, ways that you don't necessarily kind of pick up consciously. So it's just so smart. It won the Oscar for Best Costume Design in 2015, very deservedly. Um, so that's episode one. And episode two is all about like the concept of historical dramas and historical accuracy. And I was like, this is an interesting concept. I don't think that historical accuracy exists. I think that Hollywood is too obsessed with the idea of making a quote-unquote accurate Uh, looking film while ignoring deeper political concerns to do with what actually happened in history. So I was like, I'm going to examine this topic, but I'm going to do it through the fun lens of Keira Knightley's entire filmography, because she has done like every possible type of mainstream historical drama. So that's a video all about Keira Knightley. That's the first two. There's going to be new episodes up each Thursday. There will be a link in the show notes, but the YouTube channel is called Behind the Scenes. You can find it on my Twitter as well. I will remind you at the end of the episode do me a solid and subscribe if you like it. Uh, Morgan, let's talk about Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yes. So I think that this film is definitely the worst of the three movies. I think I said as much on the last episode. Fellowship yeah. to me is by far the best from a sort of pure quality perspective. I think Fellowship, which we didn't get to talk about as much as I would have liked <laughs> as an actual movie because we were really sort of deep in the weeds of context, which I think was really sort of interesting and useful for the whole sort of trilogy of podcasts that we're doing. I feel like the Fellowship, though, is sort of an amazing accomplishment as a piece of film. I think that this movie 
I enjoyed rewatching it more than I was expecting. Not that I thought I was like not going to enjoy it, but I feel like I remember the last time I watched it being a little bit more sort of actively frustrated with it as I was watching it. Whereas this time, probably partially because we were talking to each other while we were watching it, like I definitely enjoyed it the whole way through. And it was more thinking about it after the fact that I was like, I don't know if that movie really works. (laughs) I mean, there's kind of always a trouble. There's always a problem with kind of the middle part of a trilogy famously in movies and books. And in this one, they kind of had a a double problem because the narrative of Lord of the Rings is not well organized. Uh, Tolkien just did whatever he wanted. He was obviously not writing it to like a conventional modern structure. And as we discussed in last week's episode, he basically was just like, here's this whole book I've written that's like a million pages long. And the publishers decided to release it as a trilogy. So each of the three books don't really have a really solid arc in themselves individually. And with the movies, there was previously kind of an animated, there was like a cartoon film that tried to make the trilogy into two halves. And I think they only ever made the first film. But they were also originally, like Peter Jackson was also originally planning to do that with these Lord of the Rings films. So kind of the idea was they just kind of go to halfway through the two towers and then stop and then do a second film, which is like the second half of the two towers and then the return of the king. And it's like, there are many ways you can do that because you can kind of, pace different battles at certain places and that sort of thing and have like a proper Hollywood arc but in the end they rightly decided to just go for three films because there's so much material you want to have three films and um, and that's how people are used to consuming the stories anyway but the book still isn't enormously well suited to that so they had to rejig a lot of stuff they had to kind of change various character arcs some of which worked really well some of which worked less well which we will be discussing obviously but it means that they do have a structure that allows them to have like a massive big battle scene at the end. And it's like, do we really benefit that much from like this extensive battle scene compared to the first movie, which like barely has any fight scenes? I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, I would push back a little bit at the thought that the books aren't well organized. I mean, they're obviously like too long. I mean, they're not well organized from the perspective of something that can easily be adapted into a feature film. (laughs) Yes, because I think that they are are well organized they're just as you say like they're not organized in a conventional narrative structure that you would see in like a how to write a screenplay book right so as i mentioned last time and as anyone who's read these books will know they're both they're all i believe divided into two books each like each volume is divided into two books and so the first one i think the first book ends when they leave Rivendell, though I might be misremembering that, but that division is the least significant, right? Because all the characters are still together at that point, and it's just that the story's kind of moving along. Whereas the second and third books, the division is that the first half of each book follows all the characters who are not Sam and Frodo and Gollum, and then they occupy the second half of the book. And obviously the third book, they all wind up back together at the end, and then the other Mm -hmm. stuff happens at the end of that volume but it's I think pretty effective I remember reading that second novel and being really impatient to get to Sam and Frodo because there's a cliffhanger at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring and so I was just like but what happens to them and not being nearly as interested in the stuff to do with all of the other characters once you've read it one time it's more engaging I think but it works in the sense that cutting back and forth between those narratives is 
really disorienting. And I don't think it totally works in the movie. They do a pretty good job of it from a technical standpoint, but in terms of just like having a holistic sense of what all the characters are up to, it's way better to just have 200 pages of just Sam and Frodo without having to bother with all the other characters because you really get to like dig into what's going on in their heads. And I think the major failure of this film to me is the fact that that part of the story is not conveyed successfully. The stuff with Gollum, which we'll talk about in more depth later, is really compelling. But Sam and Frodo, are you don't get a strong sense of them really as people. And it's more like this movie will cut back to them to be like, oh, remember those guys? Okay, we're going to go back to Aragorn now, right? I mean, also, when we were watching and doing the commentary, you had a lot of strong feelings on the reduced roles of Merry and Pippin and, like, their very distinct personalities and stuff and being like, they're point of view characters. And I was like, are they? Because I, I, I just don't really remember the books that well. <laughs> so I read the review of this film by Roger Ebert, um, which I really recommend. I thought it was really insightful. And he, in his first, his review of the first film, he talks about the fact that the focus has shifted from the Hobbits, who are really the main characters of yeah. All yeah, of these And they're like the entry point characters. Right. And he says, With The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, it's clear that director Peter Jackson has tilted the balance decisively against the Hobbits and in favor of the traditional action heroes of the Tolkien trilogy. The star is now clearly Aragorn and the Hobbits spend much of the movie away from the action. The last third of the movie is dominated by an epic battle scene that would no doubt startle the gentle medievalist J.R.R. Tolkien. And then he's basically like, but, you know the swashbuckling battle stuff is executed really well. So like my bias, I have to kind of just get over it because like this movie is executed well. It's really fun to watch, but he ultimately, I mean, he gave it three out of four stars. Like he obviously liked the movie, but he ultimately seems a bit ambivalent about it in a way that I found insightful and that sort of reflects my view on it. The closing paragraph of this review is, The Two Towers will possibly be more popular than the first film, more of an audience pleaser, but hasn't Jackson lost the original purpose of the story somewhere along the way? He has taken an enchanting and unique work of literature and retold it in the terms of the modern action picture. If Tolkien had wanted to write about a race of supermen, he would have written a Middle-earth version of Conan the Barbarian. But no, he told a tale in which modest little hobbits were the heroes. And now Jackson has steered the story into the action mainstream. To do what he has done in this film must have been awesomely difficult, and he deserves applause. But to remain true to Tolkien would have been more difficult and braver. And i that's kind of how I feel about this movie. I think the Hobbits, again, become a bit more central in the third film. Like, there's way more of Pippin in the third movie with the stuff that happens in Gondor, which obviously we will discuss in future. But all the stuff with Aragorn in this movie mostly is fun to watch. <laughs> and Viggo Mortensen is, like, incredibly charismatic. He's a great actor. He's very attractive. But I think the sort of thematic thing that Tolkien is trying to do with the books, which is to talk about these huge kind of global catastrophes from the point of view of... I mean, they're literally little people in this, but I mean in the, like, symbolic sense of, like non-significant people who kind of have to just like yeah. muddle their way along is not adequately conveyed in this movie at all because the focus shifts to like the kings and princes type characters yeah. um which i, mean, I think, I think is too that bad. 
that quote you gave from Roger Ebert is definitely true and I agree with it although I kind of also don't enormously care very much because like I mean it's not like it's not like the stories they're focusing on in this film aren't compelling you know I mean Morgan's rolling her eyes but I'm like I I like Rohan I like horses the Rohan stuff I think is great and not that stuff isn't doesn't deviate hugely from the books and I don't mind changes from the books like there's always going to be changes from the novels in a project like this, of course. But I think that the shift to the focus on Aragorn so much doesn't always work. So for instance, when they're retreating from Rohan to Helm's Deep, there's an action sequence with the wargs, which I absolutely do not think needs to be in this movie. Like it achieves nothing. There's no purpose for this yeah. except to show And off I think the CGI also the telling the, the telling element of that when it happens in the film, when we were doing our commentary together, was like, I feel like I have the whole of the Fellowship of the Ring memorized because it's all so kind of artistically evocative and emotionally powerful. And there were like a couple of parts of the Two Towers like that scene, which I just completely forgotten because they are not plot relevant and they're not also not emotionally relevant. And that is, you know, it's like, oh, right. Aragorn gets nearly killed by a warg. Sure, whatever. <laughs> like, okay. Right. And he falls off this cliff and they think he's dead. And then, like, he has this vision of Arwen. More on that later. And then, like, his horse wakes him up. And then he, the horse carries him back to Helm's Deep. And nothing has been accomplished in the plot by Aragorn having this brief little walkabout where he's they think he's dead. It takes, like, 20 minutes. Nothing happens. It's just that they want to have Aragorn doing something. But, like, it literally is just, like, he's there and then he comes back. Almost nothing happens in that time. And it's just kind of, like, like treading water for the screenwriters so that they can have him on screen more. And, like, I love looking at Viggo Mortensen in these movies, but it doesn't... There's, again, there's nothing in the first movie like that, where they're just like, oh, I don't know, like, let's have him fall off a cliff. <laughs> and that's the kind of stuff that I find a bit frustrating in this film. And I think the Helm's Deep stuff is executed well in the sense that, like, it's shot really well. It's never boring to watch, but, like, it goes on for a long time. And it's not emotionally that interesting it feels like they just needed to have some big thing happen at the end whereas the actual end of this book that is like dramatic is the stuff with shelob the big spider like making frodo into into the next film right so they have to rejigger the whole plot to come up with something else and it basically works like the movie is definitely engaging but i think it's much less emotionally interesting than the way the novel is set up all right, so um, all right, so as last week we were kind of discussing how visually speaking, Lord of the Rings kind of gives us a beautiful journey from like the old rustic word world of Hobbiton uh, back to even older worlds, sort of like the neoclassical elves, and back into like the ancient primordial fires of Mordor and so forth. You know, there's this very kind of historical nostalgic feel of traveling back in time. And in this movie, they introduce kind of the first really major uh, human settlement, which is obviously Rohan, the Riders of Rohan. Um, They're sort of like directly Anglo-Saxon group, but like it's sort of like, what if the Anglo-Saxons were really into horses? Which is the kind of bold creative choice that I can really support because you can simultaneously tell 
that this is like deeply researched both by Tolkien and by uh, the film's production designers. And also that they were like, wouldn't it be cool if there were horses? And when you're watching the film, you're like, it certainly would be. (laughs) It's great that there's loads of horses here. So we have lots of really pretty stuff to look at. And we also have an extremely classic sort of mythical royal conflict where we have the loyal son uh, played by Carl Urban in a beautiful, very real and plausible wig. Nephew. Nephew. He's a nephew. He's the nephew. Wow. Okay. Well, whatever. Yeah. There's the there's the boy the boy man <laughs> the guy. There's the hot guy on a horse who is like too pure for his father, who has been corrupted by the evil influence of Wormtongue, who is just a sheer delight. Brad Dourif, the classic uh, character actor, just being just unbelievably comically slimy in this they've sort of hosed him down with slimy juice (laughs) like made him look pale and disgusting really leaning on the idea of someone looking bad meaning that they're also spiritually bad which is very much the character design behind all of the villains in this uh, movie and he's sort of been whispering evil thoughts into the king's ear for a while which is a classic sort of corrupt king who is brought back into the light through magic and we also have kind of a subplot with the wonderful Eowyn who is this beautiful warrior maiden who is being sexually harassed by slimy Grima Wormtuff <laughs> and uh, meets Aragorn and is immediately like my god there are good men out there and it's very understandable when they introduce uh, Aragorn who is sadly taken but um, great subplot there and we have lots of scenes of kind of hanging around in the beautiful Anglo-Saxon wooden fort before going off to Helm's Deep to spend, like, hours standing around in the rain fighting orcs. Yes, indeed. Aeon was my favourite character as a child, obviously. Who else would it be? Absolutely solid choice. (laughs) But I was curious to discover, which I mentioned on the commentary track, that uh, Tolkien had originally considered having her and Aragorn wind up together at the end, which is not what he does of course and that apparently he may have written her in because his daughter was like there are too many men in this book (laughs) which i mean true and if that is indeed the genesis then uh he did a really good job so that's nice she's great (laughs) but i think the sort of role of women in this book and and then in the film's is kind of interesting, right? Because we talked last time about the fact, obviously, like every, almost everybody in this story is a man, which feels less sort of tricky to me than the racial elements, which we'll also discuss briefly. Although I don't have a ton more to say about that than what we said last time. It's just like the same. It's much more noticeable in this film. Well, I have some thoughts that I will tie into my thoughts about the music, which is extensive, and I will go into it later. Yeah. But I don't... I mean, as we said last time, like, I don't mind particularly that um, it's all men, because obviously, like, that was what he was interested in writing about, and he was dealing with his emotions, and, you know... And World War I, and Brotherhood, and so forth. Yes. But I kind of feel like... He has... So there are three female characters, essentially, in these books. Yeah. Galadriel, Arwen, and Eowyn. And Eowyn is the only one who is really sort of fleshed out as a character. But I think that they all occupy kind of different spaces 
in a way yeah. that makes it feel sort of rich enough that I was never particularly bothered by it as a kid. I feel like if Eowyn's not in the book, then it feels a lot less rich. But like Arwen really only exists to be in love with Aragorn, which is a very kind of mythological kind of story and we'll yeah. get into her I mean a lot of the characters in Lord of the Rings are obviously very archetypal yes and then you have the sort of earthier characters who have more kind of personal independence in their own actions even if they are not like powerful characters so like the hobbits are all kind of doing stuff that feels relatable and normal and then obviously Arwen isn't because she's this mythological romantic character and Eowyn right. is more kind of a cross between the two because like you get more idea of her motives in a relatable way and also she's like oh here's this like you know the one warrior woman kind of thing <laughs> right and then Galadriel is also very much like rooted in Anglo-Saxon and sort of um renaissance poetry ideas of mythical women who are like witches and kind of yeah. scary but also you're there's like a courtly love component to the way that they think about her like it's not in the movies but like Gimli goes in being really afraid of her and then is completely enchanted by her in a like romantic but not sexual way like he just loves her so much by the time they leave there and remains really devoted to her throughout the um the books and she is like very powerful and kind of strange in a way that feels distinct and then you have Eowyn who again feels more like a real person and obviously is playing on these tropes of like the warrior women but in a way that like I definitely found really accessible as a young person reading that book and I think the three of them as this kind of triumvirate in the novel is kind of interesting because they again all are kind of archetypal in a way but represent sort of three different sides of like his idea of femininity in a kind of fascinating way. It's also way. like the three types of like Ren Fair girl. Because you've got the goth, <laughs> which is Galadriel. And then you've got like the sword girl. And then you've got the hippie. And I guess you're yeah. missing like the busty bar wench. This is me stereotyping well, my own demographic. But <laughs> that would be the, uh, the woman girl. Sam ends up Yeah, there we go. We've got the, the fourth one. It's Sam's, yeah. it's Sam's wife, Rosie. Yeah. <laughs> So I think that, again, it's obviously not like the main point of the novels, but I don't have a problem with the way the female characters are depicted. I think that you can certainly like make critiques, but I find it kind of interesting the way he writes women. I don't know that the movies fully do justice to them, and Arwen specifically is the one who doesn't really work in this film in particular, is bad. Miranda Otto is very good as Eowyn. She just doesn't... She doesn't get as much screen time as she does in the book, but that's yeah. just a I mean, she's one of those characters who has, like, a lot of screen time in the extended versions. Which, and it kind you know, of, yeah. It is what it is. They cut the stuff with her and Faramir to the extent... And put it in the extended one in the third film, which is... It is what it is. But, um... Obviously, Galadriel is very electrifying in the first movie because Kate Blanchett is an icon. But um, I think what you see in this movie is a classic case of writers being like, we need to have the women in here more. We have to do something with the female character we have. 
which is Arwen in this case, but like not understanding how to do that or recognizing that sometimes you just don't need to. Sometimes you should just not. And so in this movie, Arwen is like, listens to Elrond, who's like, you have to leave and go to the Undying Lands because actually Aragorn is going to die. And she's like, okay, I guess I'll listen to you. And then she leaves. <laughs> and like, he has visions, Aragorn has visions of her or whatever. And what winds up happening in the third movie, spoiler alert, is that like, she's on her way to go and like, has a vision of their son and is like, actually, I have to stay. And like, it's, it's so dumb. <laughs> And there's like no, we just had what you described as like a, a 90s music video dream sequence with like a bunch of floaty curtains and Arwen looking very beautiful. Yeah. And there's no narrative reason why she has to go right now. Right? Again, it's sort of like there's no particular story reason they've given why it's like completely urgent for her to be leaving at this moment when Aragorn is in like great peril, right? Like a bunch of the other elves go to Helm's Deep to help fight. Why does Arwen have to be, like, rushing for the boat to, like, get the fuck out of there? But they want to create a sense of conflict that isn't rooted in the logic of the world or the story that, like, actually exists and makes sense. Like, obviously, you can't say real world logic because it's fake, but it just doesn't work. And it doesn't feel like it makes sense for her character because her character is sort of too... too two dimensional to be coherent as a person anyway. And then it just kind of feels condescending because she's just listening to her controlling dad and is being tugged between these two men. And like, I find it pretty odious. And again, it feels like they're trying to be like, well, we should again, have, have the woman in here more, but like, I mean, it's also partly like they don't want the audience to forget about that romance before the third film comes out in two years. But they could just have him have like flashbacks. Like, just literally have him have, like, have, like, one image of them, like, making out. And you're done! Show yeah. the- He mentions d- her to Eowyn. Have the vi- have the necklace. That accomplishes the whole damn thing. Like, ugh. But I think this kind of gets to the, like, representational politics questions where, again, sometimes you just don't need it. And it's fine. And, like, I prefer that to this awkward kind of shoehorning in of, like, well, oh. Like, yeah. she doesn't I have mean, a personality. Just a side note, I found it very funny when the Ents so- show up and they have to have, like, they have to be like, oh, all of the Ent wives are gone. And I'm like, they're trees. You have found a narrative reason to not have any female trees in your story. And it's like, there's no reason for this. I don't care. But it's very silly that you're like, oh, yes, the Ent wives like strolled off into the West. So we can't have any trees in skirts. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, in the book, there's this sort of like melancholy aspect to that. I mean, right? yeah. <laughs> like, it, like, they're, I mean, it's obviously they are the silly, old world like, or whatever, you know. Yes. And like, they're very lonely because they're, like, they want them to come back and they don't know how to get them back and they're gone. They just don't address it in this movie and they're just all voiced by men. <laughs> like, there's just no... Which also, like, nothing. obviously isn't noticeable because, no. like, it's just, of course, like, of course all the trees are men in this franchise that we've already accepted as primarily men. <laughs> And they're just rumbling away, like, you know. And it's also one of those things where, like, in the book, it's, like, a ten-page, like, parable that he's telling them about, like, the antwives, which (laughs) is not addressed here, which is fine. Um, So I agree that the stuff when they're at 
like in Rohan before they go to Helm's Deep. I really like all that that section. The production design, as you said, is like a, a, amazing. Uh, I think you mentioned in the commentary track that like you notice like every little bowl that happens to be like sitting. Yeah, on there's the, just like you know, so many like not unnecessary but like props that most films would not bother with where they've just got like this hall that's full of really real stuff and it just brought me back to visiting loads of historical reenactment museums as a child and that sort of thing so you've got this wonderfully kind of evocative new location and they don't need to do a lot of legwork to introduce like Theoden and you know all of the other Rohan characters because they're very easy to accept and very fun because they've all got horses so yes the horses are great. And we've not even mentioned like Gimli and Legolas yet. This is the film which is just Gimli and Legolas running around. <laughs> which I love. I love those two. Just adorable. Just two types of himbo. <laughs> it's definitely the most dialogue that Orlando Bloom has. It's very funny. Almost all of his dialogue, if not 100%, is just descriptive. He just says what he's looking at, and sometimes he says it in an emotional tone, and other times he's just looking really long distances on people's behalf. (laughs) Yes. I mean, it's quite funny. Obviously, they get a lot of banter in the Helm's Deep sequence, which is what all this leads up to. I think Bernard Hill, who plays Theoden, is very good He's really effective at playing someone who obviously is not malicious, but just doesn't get it at all. Yeah. When he kind of recovers, you're like, at last, the king's fine. And then you kind of realize that, I mean, he's not really prepared for this because he's basically having to, like, make a nuclear weapon decision five minutes out of coming out of a coma. And what he's used to usually doing is being the fairly successful ruler of a relatively peaceful Anglo-Saxon settlement. So... Yeah, and it's just like, when I was watching it, I was just really amused because I was thinking back to last month's episode when we were kind of talking about Tolkien's personal politics, which are obviously complex, muddled, and slightly ridiculous, as you might expect. (laughs) Um, But it's like, it's so clear from like the interplay between him and Aragorn that like, (laughs) you're simultaneously getting this narrative, which is absolutely about how this king is like a disaster And it's the kind of classic conflict between there being this heir who's been forced out by a corrupt ruler. And then Aragorn is, of course, the perfect king of the entire narrative where it's like, once he's in charge, we enter a golden age. So you've got like all of these stories which are about corrupt, awful, terrible and incompetent kings. We're going to have another iconically incompetent evil king in the next movie. But then Tolkien's like, but monarchy's wonderful if you've got the right guy. If he's like pure of heart and also his bloodline goes back to the whatevers, you're, it's great. It's ideal. And it's like fantastic. I'm loving these mixed messages. This is what we have founded an entire genre of historical dramas on. We simultaneously love all the conflict. And also we just like really want the king to be a good person. <laughs> yes. It has to be an Aragorn level person and then it's okay. I mean, he, as we said, was like into like actual monarchy, not a constitutional monarchy, but like didn't, I don't think liked the actual monarchs no, in the I UK, mean, if, you, if I remember correctly. If you actually correctly. like the reigning monarch in the UK, like there's something fundamentally wrong with you. Like, it's right. just, it's ridiculous. <laughs> so it's just a fantasy. I mean, Obviously, this is all a fantasy, but like this particular yeah, he likes idea, he likes right? the monarchy in theory, but only if he can like install some character from like a Welsh myth that was written right. in like twelve BC. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! To be fair, the movie definitely like overemphasizes Aragorn's 
kingliness and role in the narrative to like yes. beef this up. <laughs> Obviously, he's completely like his role in the books is that he is the perfect fated king and becomes king of Gondor, whatever. But they make him the main character essentially of this film and the next movie. So like Peter Jackson and screenwriters are leaning in to that element. And there are lots of shots of him like dramatically opening doors with lights streaming in behind him. Like, which I enjoy. Beautiful. Treasure. I mean, the Hell's Deep stuff, as we said, like it is well shot and certainly entertaining to watch. As someone who has watched a vast number of really big kind of battle sequences, it's up there. Like it's an incredible battle sequence. Yes, I think I do think it's good. I just find it I mean it goes on for a long time. And too long. As you said in terms of that review you were reading from earlier, like narratively speaking, the films don't necessarily need there to be an extensive heavy duty explosion filled battle sequence. Right. And I think I wonder if they had cut the warg stuff, whether the Kelm's Deep thing would feel a little bit less overlong. Because you wouldn't have already had something that was like a bunch of fighting. Yeah. Like the warg thing is the bigger sin to me. Yeah. Of, I mean, I fundamentally, I like the Battle of Helm's Deep, and that's impressive considering the fact that it's a three-hour-long movie, <laughs> whereas the Warg thing is just like, okay, sure. It's it, That is totally extraneous and useless. Like, obviously, it's not like they've created a conflict out of nothing because they're being attacked by these Urukai who want to kill them, and they wind up defeating them. But in the book, as I was mentioning on the commentary track, and as people who have read the book will know, it's literally like 20 pages, like out of a 400-page book or something. And so they kind of restructure the priorities of the novel into being like, oh my god, these people are so imperiled by this, which narrows the scope a lot, which is kind of what you need to do for a movie. But I think the way they wind up cutting it with the Frodo and Sam stuff also sometimes doesn't work. Um, we should just move on to... Frodo and Sam here, I think, because that is the bigger problem of the film to me, which obviously like interacts with the fact that they chose to prioritize the Helm's Deep stuff so much, right? Like then, then that necessarily leaves less room for the other stuff. It all is connected. But um, I just think that they really, really struggle with how to dramatize all the scenes with Frodo and Sam trying to get into Mordor. And it's the part of the book that's the most kind of philosophical. Like, not a lot is happening in that section, which is part of what I think he's trying to get across about war, is that, like, which anyone who has written about war or, like, been in a war will say is that, like, so much of that experience is just sitting around waiting for something to happen and, like, being bored. Yeah. As and opposed to, like, being in combat And we were watching constantly. the kind of Frodo-Sam stuff, I was like, yep, this really tracks with what we were discussing in the last episode about World War One and Tolkien's yeah. experiences. But I, I remember reading that section and like as a little kid and being really gripped by it and gripped by this feeling of like dread about what was happening to him. Well, it's very physical. There's a lot of kind of physical discomfort, which is always what really hits. Yeah. And um, that's obviously hard to convey in a movie, but I don't think they do it very well. And I don't think they dramatize the relationship between Sam and Frodo very well, which is obviously the emotional core of the book. 
And I think part of that is that they really de-emphasize the fact that he is his servant. Sam being Frodo's servant, Yeah, you, that really, is. you really wouldn't get that at all. And I'd no. completely forgotten that element. Like, they have, like, a punchline where he's like, I'm his gardener. And it's like, they do definitely kind of de-emphasize the class elements, which, as you said in last month's episode, is kind of to do with the idea of them bonding between, not an aristocrat, but sort of like a more upper-class officer figure with Frodo and like an enlisted soldier kind of bonding in the trenches and having like a true English friendship and brotherhood. Yes. Which like I understand on one hand. Like certainly they could not have done it exactly as it is in the books because it would not have tracked for a 21st century. And also like it's quite like I'm fine with this change. Like it's like it, it would be quite complicated to simultaneously have to articulate the class difference between them beyond the kind of basic stuff like their accents, while also being like here's this close friendship and the kind of implying stuff in their backstory and also having them being in the trenches. So you know, there's a lot to there's a lot to go at the same time. But I feel like the relationship as it is in the movie is just not. I don't get very much from them. Like, I don't really get who those people are in this movie. Like, they're just there. I The actors are fine. Like, Elijah Wood is good at lovely, looking lovely creepy. Young but part of the power of those books and, like, the, that relationship is that when Sam becomes the more powerful person, it is, in, like, incredibly impactful. Because when... It's, it's just after the she love stuff and he has to finally like carry the ring. It feels like a huge, almost like breaking of a taboo for him to be like, well, I actually have to do this now because it's like more important that I take on this responsibility than like this, these rules that we've sort of established for ourselves in this relationship. And then they become equals by the end. And I, again, like, I don't necessarily need, like, exactly all these things to have been translated into the films. Like, I I really am not bothered by changes being made, despite another thing that I'm going to complain about having been changed from the book in a moment. But I just don't think it's replaced by anything that is as interesting as what I just described. Like, they just kind of are trekking along together. And, like, Sam is disturbed by Gollum, as you would expect him to be because Gollum, Gollum is, is so disturbed. We need, to, we need to talk about Gollum actually because like Gollum yeah. really comes into his own in this film and it's just like every time he was on screen I was like oh Gollum. So I think what really works about this portion of the movie is the stuff of Gollum and Andy Serkis is like incredible performing him and then the people at Weta who did all of the special effects like my hat is off to you because yeah. no one I mean, has talked to you unparalleled. in 20 years. It's like un- truly it's it's the peak right it's so wild to like compare this specifically with andy circus's role as supreme leader snoke in star wars because i mean the reason why kind of cgi characters in live action movies in a lot of blockbusters aren't good is because it's not being done by sort of in-house artists like it's being done by various different studios in different parts of the world potentially some of whom are very overworked it's not like got the personal touch and when like a blockbuster has like really amazing visual effects it's because the director cares and because usually there's like some kind of in-house presence which is what it's like in Star Wars which is why the visual effects in Star Wars are stunning but in the specific case of main characters that are predominantly cgi which is definitely snoke is the worst culprit it's just like he sucks it doesn't feel like a real person i mean it's not a well-written character either but it's like it's interesting to see that from 
Andy Serkis, who is like the undisputed king of this sort of subgenre of character. I have not seen any of the Planet of the Apes movies, but they are also meant to be like incredible. And in this, like, obviously you can kind of, at this point, like 20 years on, you can, if you kind of detach yourself, you can be like, okay, I can maybe see some elements of this where you can like visibly tell that it's not real. But that isn't relevant. Like, we know, we know none of this is real, right? It feels, it completely has like the exact impact as if you saw someone that looked and behaved like Gollum appear in front of you and start freaking out. It's just like, it's so visceral. The body language is amazing. The character design, especially like the hands are so like creepy and weird and you feel like you have this like really physical sense of this character's vulnerability, but also the fact that he is just so volatile. And it's really alarming because it's completely unlike any of the other characters you've met in the franchise. Like you have met characters that are emotionally unstable. You've met characters that are vulnerable and cowardly and dangerous. But Gollum is just like so extreme and really understandable. And they have, it just doesn't feel ridiculous, you know, because it's like he's a very comedic character and also a really scary character, but it's so rooted in kind of real human vulnerability and a narrative that feels a lot like kind of an addiction and recovery story because obviously like his suffering is all tied up in his obsession with the ring. And once he kind of starts hanging out with Frodo and Sam, like his arc throughout this film is Frodo kind of slowly like gaining Gollum's trust which is partly Frodo, something Frodo's doing for himself because he wants to see that if he gets taken over by the ring, which he can tell is already happening, he knows there might be light at the end of the tunnel. And then kind of the big tragic ending to this story is when they meet up with Faramir and his troops at the end of the uh, film and then Frodo effectively betrays Gollum by allowing Gollum to be captured by Faramir. And kind of throughout this, you see Gollum's split personality where there's that couple of argument scenes where he is, they just edit it. So he's like arguing with himself with like the, you know, sweet, sweet, harmless Smeagol who just wants to make friends with Frodo. And then like Gollum, who's just like, I'm an evil gremlin. (laughs) And it's just, it's a fantastic and very disturbing role where I was just like, every time I'd scream it, I was just like, oh, oh, he's back. (laughs) Yes. I mean, he feels more real than any of the real characters in that segment of the movie, or indeed the rest of the film, to me. Which is both a testament to the writing and performance and CGI stuff of that character, and also kind of a critique of the rest of the movie. Because, obviously, that kind of split personality thing does not happen very often. Or like that. Like, at all. (laughs) I mean, the whole, like, multiple personality disorder thing is, like, it's not, that's not real. But you totally buy it the way it's written and performed. Like it, it feels correct when you're watching it and it's more explicitly psychological, even if it's in a sort of heightened, yeah, sort of fantastical way than anyone else is getting in this movie, except maybe some of the Rohan stuff. And it is really, really gripping. And then I think that the way that they write, Sam and Frodo and then Faramir, which is the other thing I wanted to complain about in this movie, when they finally run into him, it's all just much more surface level. As we were watching the stuff with Faramir, I hadn't seen this movie in a while. I'd seen Fellowship a couple times more recently, but this one I had not seen since college, I think. And Faramir was my other kind of favorite character reading this as a kid, so obviously the fact that he and Eowyn got married, I was like, bliss. Very, very satisfying. Um, But 
they make him much more sort of straightforward in the film I mean, they than make the him book. more antagonistic, right? Because yes. I, I remember I read somewhere a while ago that, like, because they, like, moved the Shelob thing up into the next film, they had to have some kind of finale for Frodo and Sam to come up against. They were like, Faramir needs to be, like, more conflict-based. And then you can yes. kind of compare his role directly to Boromir in the previous film. Right. So... Recent, I have not reread these books yet, but I got a secondhand set of them, which I have to show to you over the Skype because they're <laughs> so cool. They're, they're oh, from like the I remember 60s. those illustrations. Those are like that's like the classic illustration with like Mordor in the front. I forgot who illustrated that, but it's like that is a yes. real a vintage one. I will take a picture of this and put it on Twitter. But um, I have not gotten around to reading rereading them yet. But I uh, I skimmed the Faramir bit from this book because I was like am I misremembering this like I I have read these since I was 18 or something and I'm pretty sure the whole bit with them like capturing Gollum doesn't happen although I may have just missed it but um definitely the scene where Frodo talks to Faramir it goes on for quite a while which obviously they cannot do in the movie but like they're kind of talking as like intellectual equals in a really like philosophical way but Frodo's still a bit frightened of him because obviously like he has this army with him. And um, there's this whole thing where like there's like writing in the history, like the archives in Gondor of this thing called Isildur's Bane, which is the ring, but they don't know what that is. But like he kind of figures out that Frodo has it and is like, but I don't want to know anything about it. Like literally just do not tell me. And then Sam lets out later that, about the ring and that Boromir had wanted the ring. And then Frodo is like, fuck, like, he's going to want to take it from me now. And Faramir, who who Tolkien writes kind of in this, like, occasion, will occasionally be like, write him in an ambivalent way so the reader doesn't quite know what's going to happen. But Faramir is just like, I don't want it. Like, I, you know, trust me, like, I just want to see Gondor peaceful. And like, and it's so much more, like, complex and nuanced than what they do. And I feel like is crucial to what Tolkien is trying to say about like morality and ethics and like how people interact with each other and the fact that he just lets Frodo go it's he's the only character like that except for Aragorn who's like a man who's just like you know what I'm just out I'm not interested like (laughs) just I'll just help you get to the next place and then you can go and um there's something about the kind of religious subtext of the books where it almost feels to me like in the movie, like Faramir has to kind of see what's happening before he can kind of believe what he, that he should do the right thing. Right. And he just has the goodness in him without having to sort of be tried in the same way in the book. And it's still dramatically really tense because you don't quite know what's going to happen, but like it doesn't, require that kind of like I'm taking you hostage and then we're going to go to this place but they obviously feel like they have to do that to have some kind of like drama for the movie and I think the whole problem with that section is that like what makes that part of the book interesting to read is not that like stuff is happening although there is like he falls into the marsh Frodo falls into the marsh and then something happens like there are incidents it's more about the psychological stuff and the conversations the characters are having that is engaging And I just feel like this movie does not do that. And like the first movie is mostly about like events, but there will be the occasional scene, like the scene with Frodo and Gandalf talking about like dealing with living through difficult times, right? Where like the dialogue is really strong and they're having these conversations about like ideas. 
And this film just doesn't have that to me, which I think is kind of what makes it a little bit weaker, which is just a bit of a bummer to me because the stuff is there on the source text and they kind of go the easier route, I think. That's my view. (laughs) (laughs) That's my take. My take on that was I was really impressed um, both with the Rohan and Gondora royal families that they managed to cast actors who all looked like real siblings. So I was like, wow, Faramir looks similar to Boromir and then stopped thinking. (laughs) It is true. He is perfect casting, which is part of my like frustration, right? Because I was like, it's the perfect guy for this, but they haven't done the right thing with him. And Denethor is cast perfectly as well, which we'll get to in the Oh, looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Yes. Well, I think we can wrap up this episode with me uh, discussing the music, which we did not have time for in last month's epic over an hour long (laughs) episode. Yes, please. I will go ahead. Uh, Yeah, so obviously the score for these three films was composed by Howard Shore. Um, This is by far his kind of most famous work, his magnum opus. He's composed music for numerous movies. And the kind of creative process and the output for Lord of the Rings is different from kind of the majority of films in two ways. One of which is that Howard Shore spent way more time on this film than you usually do like frequently you will look at like the imdb of a composer and be like this guy composed like six movies worth of music in one year it's i cannot but i don't understand how they do it so fast but like film and tv composers just are incredibly prolific and usually it's like okay i'll spend like six to eight weeks (laughs) composing the music for a movie howard shore just spent like i think it was something like two years working on the music for Lord of the Rings, which is incredibly complex and gorgeous and just a a masterpiece. And as I was saying, kind of there's two differences between most film music. The second difference is that there's basically no kind of incidental music in these films. So like Star Wars, the music is very much geared towards concepts and themes and locations. So, you know, if you look at the soundtrack listing, you will see here's the theme for like this location, this character, like there's certain different subgenres that he uses for like the hobbits or for Isengard and that sort of thing. And they're extremely recognizable. And if you were ever into these films in your youth, they are like completely just get sucked into your brain because they're such amazing kind of catchy pieces of music. And so it's like less of what you get for like TV or whatever where you just have music that's like explaining why you need to feel tense like music that's like okay we're in like the romantic part now um and if you watch something like a marvel movie sort of 80 percent of the music would just be incidental music and then you'll have like a big fanfare for particular characters or like a battle scene so in terms of like how the trilogy's music functions it, it basically sounds like kind of romantic era symphonic music which would be kind of the 19th century um, it's a period where there's lots of really big orchestras, emotionally complex music, and usually you'd, you'd have like more and more music was kind of based around like a concept or a narrative rather than it just being like, here is a symphony for violin. You'd be like, this is a story that takes place inside the symphony and here are like the points where you're meant to feel certain things. And also kind of tying in with other elements of 19th century art, there was a real sense of kind of nostalgia, false nostalgia, really kind of like fairy tale fantasy nostalgia. So this is around the time when you had neoclassical art was really popular, like kind of late 19th century, you had pre-Raphaelites coming in 
And that definitely ties into sort of there's all these romantic era 19th century um, composers who are working with the idea of sort of like a mythical ancient age and sort of fantastical worlds and nostalgia for the Middle Ages and a fascination with the beauty and romance and power of nature, which is all stuff that Tolkien absolutely loves, of course. And he and C.S. Lewis both kind of grew up with Victorian sort of fairy tales, which is their their origins. <laughs> so it's like, it's all knitting together very well. And so Howard Shore, the Lord of the Rings composer, was like, we're going to go for a romantic era style of composition, while also... Obviously, there's like lots of modern elements. Like it doesn't sound like contemporary composition, which is what like if you're not super into classical music, you'd just be like, why does contemporary music sound like that? Because it's a lot more abstract. Um, but you know, he uses he uses lots of experimental uh, little ideas in there because he's a brilliant modern composer. But like once you're like two films into the front into the series, you can definitely see like the different motifs coming up. So. For different locations, you have loads of kind of Celtic folk instruments for the hobbits because they are sort of these simple pastoral folk and they're like, let's listen to a fiddle. And then all of the elves had these sort of smooth, epic choral music because they're these sort of classical, uh, beautiful people with like these far more complex and rather exoticized uh, music styles, which brings me around to the uh, racist elements of the music. <laughs> so... There's very clear themes for kind of the good guys and the bad guys. Like you have like the Rohan and the Hobbit people with their classic kind of European British folk music and then like more classical European romantic music with the orchestra for the other heroes, which is like beautiful fanfares and so forth. But then when you get to Isengard is like very noticeable and also Sauron and the orcs, they have the scary music, which is equally effective, amazing uh, composition, with Isengard and Saruman, you have this sort of industrial, martial kind of sounding music, which has these 5-4 rhythms, piece of metal, like slamming in with all these orcs, like destroying the natural world. Very noticeable. And then with Sauron, his theme, it's on what you would kind of describe as like a quote-unquote like Eastern scale. And it is played on like a Moroccan instrument, which is kind of like an oboe. So it's like you're immediately kind of exoticizing and orientalizing the villains. Like a lot of the villain themes have what in classical music would be described as like Eastern patterns, which is more kind of like it's what, it's what like Western Europeans are like interpreting from what they've heard of music from the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century. So it's like not like this isn't something they've researched. I discussed this a lot in the Stargate episode as well, because Stargate has like an amazing soundtrack, which is really powerful and also quite subtextually racist. But it was really interesting to kind of rewatch this film in particular and see simultaneously like how incredible the music is and also how the kind of villain themes really tie into the sort of imagery we're getting for when they introduce the minor like human allies to Sauron. Because as we discussed in like last month's episode, obviously kind of there's some problematic imagery used in the design and, con and concepts of the Uruk-hai and the orcs. Um, but also in this film is where we see introducing, I think they're called like the Southerners and the Easterlings or something. Like, like they, they don't even really go into it very much in the books. But like visually speaking, you see there's the people who have the giant elephants and the people who are wearing sort of these amazing like pointy suits of armor with like veils over their faces who are leading the human troops who intentionally side with Sauron in Mordor and then fight against the heroic forces in the Battle of Helm's Deep. And like 
their costumes look really cool. Like, they're a really cool army, but, like, it's, like, so obviously racialized in a really offensive way. They're immediately kind of characterizing these people as other, like, they are outside the northern slash western European world of the Lord of the Rings heroes. And there's no explanation as to why they're joining Sauron. They're just like, here are these foreigners who are bad and non-specifically non-white and are designed in a way that feels unlike the main characters. There's so much kind of disrespect there. Like, you don't know why these characters are siding with them. You don't know about the world building of their background. And the kind of imagery is sort of mixed up. So instead of it being like, you can look at Rohan and immediately be like, oh, it's Anglo-Saxons. Like, you look at the characters who are like, fighting on Sauron's side and you're like well all I can tell is this is like offensively foreign (laughs) you know it's like a classic cultural appropriation mishmash yes it's obviously like they've derived certain things from like a generic Middle Eastern aesthetic but it's not specific enough yeah because I was like looking this up and it was like they also were like oh there's elements of Aztec in there and I was like there is (laughs) okay (laughs) I mean it's the sort of thing that like It just doesn't need to be in the fucking movie, right? And there is briefly, like, a couple of shots in the Rohan stuff depicting, like, people who have sort of gone over to Saruman. I think it's Saruman and not Sauron. Yeah, there's some, like, evil peasants who've been drummed up by Saruman. And, like, that just, that's like, okay, fine. These people are clearly unhappy with their lot and they've, like, gone to be evil peasants. Which makes (laughs) a lot more sense in the context of the story and and the evil peasants are white people, we should specify. Yeah. But, like, it just makes a lot more sense contextually if it's, like, within the bounds of the story that you have already established, yeah. right? Then like, this other idea of people who have clearly come from a location that is not, like, the main continent of Middle-earth, because, like, we don't see them anywhere else. So this group of people have, like, come from somewhere far away to join Sauron for reasons that don't really get explained or make any sense. And their one character trait is that they're evil. And it's like, what are you doing here? What am I, what? (laughs) Yes. And again, as we talked about last time, obviously the brief of these movies was like, they just wanted to adapt these books as faithfully as possible, which is why I don't find the casting of the like main characters particularly bothersome as I watch, right? Like if these were being made today, there would be a different conversation, but like, as a movie that was cast in the late 90s, like, it is what it is. But this is something where, like, there, why? <laughs> like, there's yeah. just no... I mean, no... It's, not, it's not necessary. It just it undermines, like, the amount of research that goes into the other design elements. And it's, like, it's not like there weren't conversations happening, like, in the 90s about racism on film. And obviously, like, pretty much everyone involved in the, in the like, main creative team of these films was white but it's just like it's a it, there's no overlooking the extreme awkwardness of the kind of human allies to Sauron in this film it's the absolutely by far the biggest problem to me because the orc stuff is like absolutely also offensive like 100% I'm not diminishing that at all but you can see how the people doing it could have been like clueless right yeah because that kind of thing is like a part of fantasy literature, which is a problem, obviously. Yeah, the, the goblin like, problem. The archetypal yes, goblin problem. Yes. And it's not real, in quotes, right? Whereas, again, I'm not trying to like absolve them, but like you, I can understand how this came to be. Whereas this shit, 
clearly they are drawing from real cultures, you know, but like then mashing them together, but also they're just like, there's just evil people like it, with no explanation. Like it's totally just indefensible to me. Oh, um, it's gross. Fortunately, not a huge part of the movie or else it would be really distressing instead of just being gross and offensive and then they cut away to something else. Um, they're in the third one more, as I recall. Yeah, I remember a lot of scenes where I'd be like, oh, kill an elephant. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. At the age of 12, I was just like, I love the elephants. Like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll have more to say next time when they reappear. Yeah. Although it's probably just going to be more of the same. I mean, like, it's the same problem, essentially. Yeah, I don't think we need to go into this in the next month's episode, but I am definitely looking forward to rewatching The Return of the King, whose main narrative I've mostly forgotten. Like, obviously, there's more of the same for Frodo and Sam, but I mean, there's all this stuff that's going to be happening with my pals Legolas, Gimli, and Aragorn, you know, looking forward to it. Gondor, man. Yes. Love Gondor. I feel like it's, I feel like Legolas and Gimli have the least to do in the third yeah, I mean, movie. it really doesn't matter because they both have one personality trait each and I love that one personality trait. Great yes. wigs too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the wigs in these movies are superlative. Not to be topped by Hollywood since. Yeah, like... I mean, wigs really went drastically downhill after this franchise. <laughs> it's shameful, frankly. But yeah, as I said, the first one is my favorite of these three movies, but I deeply love the third one too. So yes. I'm really really looking forward to that uh i remember crying in the movie theater watching it so you know <laughs> wonderful ending it's a it's both a wonderful ending and five wonderful endings famously yes i think i had three different return of the kings posters in my childhood bedroom at one point so like this it was i was all in yeah so that will be exciting yeah, to rewatch in a month's time yeah and next week we have an episode which i'm so excited for <laughs> uh this is someone happily requested something on patreon which i've been really wanting to watch and i've really wanted morgan to watch which is we're going to watch the uh 2003 battlestar galactica miniseries so it's kind of like the intro to the battlestar galactica tv reboot obviously kind of for patreon requests we cannot do like a whole tv series but this is like a nice length it's a two-parter it's three hours long it's effectively it's effectively feature length I've not rewatched this since I was a teenager, so I'm greatly hoping that it is as awesome and amazing as I recall. But this is, I mean, this is kind of the, like, the first foray, really, into kind of the modern era of, like, prestige genre TV, kind of in mid-2000s. And I have high hopes. Yeah, I've never seen a second of Battlestar Galactica, although I knew many people who loved the show. Um, my dad, I remember, was really into it. Which Fantastic was... ensemble cast. Yeah. Um, and I had saw lots of, like, just on Tumblr back in the day. <laughs> so I have some sort of vague knowledge of it, but really it's quite minimal. And I haven't ever seen this, certainly. So I am looking forward to filling a part of my, you know, cultural knowledge. Yeah, really, really embrace the, the ever-popular subgenre of sexy robots. So... <laughs> I mean, who doesn't love a sexy robot? Thank you again to Lucy for sponsoring our Lord of the Rings rewatch project. This has been so much fun. Uh, again, if you want to listen to our commentary track, uh, which was more positive than this episode, I would say, about this movie. It's, um, I mean, a lot of that commentary track is us just exclaiming in pure joy whenever Aragorn shows up on screen. It's real. It's true. It's a, a lot of what was happening. 
That is on Patreon. Both of those tracks are on Patreon. And Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me as usual at hello underscore Taylor on Twitter. And you can also find my amazing brand new YouTube series on YouTube, Behind the Seams. You know, that will be linked in the show notes, but it's that uh, awesome new uh, YouTube series about costume design. Yes. Uh, check it out. I've watched the Kira Knightley episode and it was excellent. So I completely unbiased recommendation here. Why, thank uh, you. <laughs> encourage you all to watch, subscribe. I am on Twitter at ML Davies and Letterboxd, uh, same name. And the podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.